Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. In this episode, I am excited to welcome my first guest to the podcast, Dr. Heather Ketchum. Dr. Ketchum is a medical veterinary forensic entomologist who specializes in the field of ericology, the study of ticks, as well as the field of forensic entomology, which involves the study of maggots. Her area of specialization fits with the topics of viruses and disease we have been exploring in recent episodes because ticks are incredible disease vectors. A disease vector is an organism that transmits pathogens like viruses, bacteria, or parasites from one host to another. Ticks come in second only to mosquitoes in terms of their ability to transmit disease and the number of diseases they cause in humans each year. It's not just humans, either. Ticks spread disease in wild and domesticated animal species, too. When we think about food webs and the roles of different members of ecological communities, we often think about the big things, grazers, carnivores, omnivores. But we should also be aware that there are a lot of little things out there, too, like ticks and the diseases they spread that can have a significant direct effect on host populations, which can then lead to a cascade of consequences that ripple throughout an ecosystem. So what makes ticks so good at transmitting diseases? What specializations, adaptations, and strategies have evolved in ticks that make them such effective disease vectors? Let's find out as I welcome Dr. Heather Ketchum. Hello, Dr. Ketchum, and welcome to Biota, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let, let's start with a basic question here. What exactly is a tick? A tick is an arthropod, and um, arthropods have an exoskeleton, so if you step on them, they crunch. But most people think that ticks are actually insects, and they're not. Um, insects have three pairs of legs and antennae. Ticks have four pairs of legs, a pair of chelicerae, and a pair of pedipalps, and no antennae. So ticks are actually more closely related to spiders and less related to insects. Okay, I heard a funny word in there, pedipalp. What is a pedipalp? So a pedipalp is also called a palp. And what those are are essentially, some people will confuse them with the first pair of legs on a tick. And they're using these palps as sensory structures when they go to um, take a blood meal. The palps are actually what gets uh, splayed out to the sides. They don't enter into a host, but they splay out to the side while the chelicerae are inserted into the host when they take their blood meal. Okay, so it's the chelicerae, that's what they stick in to, to suck the blood out. Yes, yes. Okay. The chelicerae have hooks on the end or look like little scissors, and they're like opposable scissors that go back and forth where they can literally dig down into, into your skin. And the teeth then that are on the chelicerae will anchor the tick into the host, and then they have salivary glands that have adapted, and there's uh, several different types of salivary glands in ticks, and one particular type will release a cement, and that cement is what anchors the tick into the host, and that's why ticks are so difficult for, for us to remove either off of ourselves or our animals. Wow, I, I did not know that they actually sort of glued themselves in after they chewed their way into you. That's, uh, that, that's interesting. Yeah, it's even, it's even more fascinating when you think about, well, when they're done feeding, when they've had their blood meal, so they fed for several days in most instances, then they have another salivary gland type that will dissolve the cement. So then they can back out of the feeding lesion and drop from the host. Okay. And so when we're thinking about ticks, how long have they been around? I mean, were there like ticks that, that would attack dinosaurs? 
So that's a great question. Up to about 20, a little over 20 years ago, we didn't really have a clear picture on how old ticks, ticks are. Um, but a group of scientists found some ticks preserved in amber in New Jersey. And they discovered that these ticks were approximately 90 million years old, which puts them active in the Cretaceous period. So the conclusion there was that ticks were likely parasitizing dinosaurs during that time. Okay, so there were ticks on dinosaurs. It wasn't just something that came along with like mammals and that kind of thing. Correct, yes. Okay. So let me ask you this. You're an associate professor at a university in the state of Oklahoma. How many different tick species do you have in that region? I mean, is, are there a lot of ticks there? Yes. Um, well, it, relatively speaking, um, in, in our region, we have two groups of ticks. We have hard ticks and we have soft ticks. Um, there are about only about a dozen combined hard ticks and soft ticks, um, but um, there are more hard ticks than there are soft ticks in the U.S., and, and especially in our region. But we have one species here in particular that dominates over all, uh, all tick species, and that is our lone star tick. That's Amblyoma americanum. And where do you find those? So those, those actually, in, in, as far as Oklahoma goes, they're, they're all over Oklahoma. Um, as far as U.S. goes, distribution goes, um, they are as far north now as Canada and as far south all the way down to Mexico, but they kind of draw the line at about the Rocky Mountains. So they're east of the Rockies and all the way to the East Coast. And their distribution continues to expand. And so just thinking about this tick in particular, what's a typical day like in the, the life of a tick? Ticks, ticks are actually pretty lazy. Um, <laughs> During the mornings, you can find them questing on the side of a trail, which basically what that means is they're seeking a blood meal um, in, the more, in the early morning hours especially. They're much more active in the early morning hours where it's not too hot um, and it's not too cold and it's very humid out. And so what, they, what these ticks do is they will climb up to the top of the vegetation. So let's say it's, it's some grass or some weeds. They'll crawl all the way up to the top. So imagine that they've been at the bottom or the base where the soil and the, and the grass are meeting and they've been hanging out there. And then morning arrives and they crawl up to the top of the blade of grass and then they start their questing. So what that means is that they're actively seeking a host by sticking their front legs up in the air and waving them. So some people mistake those as antennae that you would see on an insect, but remember ticks are not insects. And so they have sensors on that front pair of legs that are detecting carbon dioxide. So when a host is near, what happens is that they quickly climb up to the top of the blade of grass, the host walks by and the ticks get brushed onto the host. Ticks don't jump um, onto a host, but they have to be brushed onto a host by the host actively, actively walking by. And so when they're not questing uh, for that blood meal, then they, if, if they don't get a host to feed on, they crawl back down the blade of grass and they just are inactive at, the, at that soil grass interface. And what they're doing there is just absorbing the moisture out of the air. 
Uh, ticks have a very large problem with drying out. They have a, a large surface area to volume ratio. And so if they're not able to absorb the moisture from the air to replace the moisture that they're losing to the environment, then they dry out and they die. Um, if a tick is successful in finding a host, then it tries to find a protected place on that host where it's, it's warm, it's moist. Um, if it's on an animal, hopefully it's in a place where it's not likely to be uh, groomed off. So maybe in the axillaries is a really good place or the groin area or around the neck on a dog, let's say. Um, and that's where they settle down and, and they start to obtain their blood meal. And once attached, they remain attached for several days until they complete their feeding, at which point they'll drop to the ground. And so after they've had this blood meal, how long will it take till they need to eat again? So after, after they take a blood meal, most of our ticks here in, in the States are what we call three host ticks. And so after they've gotten a blood meal from one host and they drop to the ground, they'll molt to the next life stage. And so it, once they molt to the next life stage, which takes, depending upon the time of year and the season that we're in, it could take several months before they become that next life stage. And then they have to obtain another host again. Um, and then once they've had a blood meal from that host, then they'll drop to the ground and molt to the next, to the next stage. Wow. That, that is yeah. an interesting life cycle. That's really interesting yeah. there. They only well, undergo a, a um, one generation per year. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, now that we're sort of talking about the blood meal, let's, let's get into thinking about them as a, as a vector. So how do ticks transmit diseases and what makes them so good at doing this? There's, there's a couple of, of really good reasons why ticks make great vectors and that they're able to uh, transmit bacteria, um, they're able to transmit viruses and some protozoa. And the reason for this is that the pathogen itself is able to survive inside of the tick. So once a tick feeds on an infected host, then that pathogen can replicate itself in the tick. So the yeah, wait, hold, just, hold, does that hurt the, does that hurt the tick? I mean, does the tick, you know, get sick or anything? No, not at all. So the ticks are not affected by the pathogens at all. They're, they're, they have, ticks have an immune system, but the immune system does not fight off these pathogens and the pathogen does not make the tick ill, which is a great, a great relationship, right? Um, yeah. And so if that pathogen can replicate itself inside of that tick, and then you go from, you know, let's, let's just simple numbers, um, go from 10 virus particles to, um, you know, 100,000 virus particles in a few days, then that tick, once it finds another host, now it gets to infect that host with 100,000 virus particles rather than the 10 that it had, been in, it had initially been infected with. Um, so that makes them incredibly successful. The other thing that makes ticks really successful is the fact that the pathogens can be transmitted from one life stage of the tick to another. So most pathogens will be transmitted uh, what they call transstadially. So if you have a larval tick pick up a pathogen from an infected host, so the larval stage is the stage that, that hatched out of the egg. 
Um, and once that larvae becomes infected after its blood meal, then when it molts to become the next life stage, which is a nymph, then that nymph is already infected with the pathogen. It does not need to obtain the pathogen from another host. It's already infected. And then the same thing happens once the nymph obtains its blood meal from a host and molts to an adult stage, then the adult is already infected. And so that, that gives every chance, there's you know, three different life stages there that have the potential to infect a host as long as, assuming that that larvae was, was infected to begin with, but it could be any life stage that, that becomes infected with a pathogen. Um, there's very, very few pathogens that are what we call transovarially transmitted. So in other words, transmitted from the egg, from, from, the, from the female that lays her eggs. So once she lays her eggs, her eggs are typically not, not infected. Um, because we, we just don't have a lot of transovarial transmission in ticks, which is a good thing because we would have a lot uh, greater number of tick-borne diseases if we had that type of transmission. Well, speaking of tick-borne diseases, what are the main ones that people are concerned with these days? Oh, yeah. So it depends on where you live. <laughs> um, in Oklahoma and... <laughs> In Oklahoma, it is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, okay? That's, that's what physicians are concerned with. That's what health departments are concerned with. Unfortunately, the general public believes it's Lyme disease. Uh, there is no Lyme disease in Oklahoma. Um, so in terms of people in Oklahoma, it's Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. If you live on the East Coast, then they are primarily concerned with Lyme disease on the East Coast. And then anything on the West Coast in particular, is it still just more Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever or a whole different set of diseases? Yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole nother set of diseases. Um, you, you, you don't see, they do have Lyme out, out, out in the West Coast, um, but it's, you don't see as much as what you see at the Rocky Mountains and east of the Rockies. So those are examples of diseases in humans. Uh, what about um, other animals like dogs and cats and things? In Oklahoma especially, there is a tick-borne disease that is very common in dogs, and it's called Ehrlichia or canine Ehrlichiosis, and it's caused by a, an Ehrlichia that's transmitted by ticks. And Wait, so, so now what is an Ehrlichia? So Ehrlichia is like a bacteria, okay. similar okay. to bacteria. Um, and so... What happens when these dogs are infected is that, um, one, you may not know until your dog is limp. Um, it's still alive, but it's limp. It's hemorrhaged internally. Um, and so you rush them to the vet, and the vet gives them an antibiotic, simple treatment gives them a shot, starts an IV, or, or gives them a shot either way of some doxycycline. And that dog who was once appeared to be lifeless will sit up on that table and start wagging their tail. And it, it, it appears to look like, oh, it's a miracle, you know, that this dog is now fine. The reality is that the dog is now infected for life. Um, the antibiotic treatment is a long treatment. It's a couple months worth of antibiotics. And even then they still have a low level of infection. 
So it's something that you have to keep an eye on for your dog. And the main symptom is, is hemorrhaging. Their gums will hemorrhage. They'll get hemorrhaging on their belly. And soon they just become so lethargic that they, they just don't move at all. And so that's super common here in Oklahoma. It's something to keep an eye out. And there's no vaccine. There's only a treatment. And that's the simple antibiotic treatment. Um, but the key there is just to be sure that you do tick checks on dogs and remove any ticks that, that you find on your dogs. Okay. Well, I've, I've got just a couple more tick-based questions. Um, these are a little bit more practical. Um, first of all, what is the best way to avoid ticks or at least um, re reduce problems with them? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so this is the best way. Um, first off, you need to you need to be aware of your surroundings, okay? If you are an outdoorsman, okay? Um, and by the way, you don't find all ticks outdoors in the woods, okay? We can come back to that that in a minute. Okay. But um, if you are, let's say you're an avid hiker and camper, then your best bet there is to stay on the, the, the paths and the trails that have been created for you. Um, if you... It, because if you stay in those areas, then you're avoiding the tick habitat. That's the, the big picture here is avoid the tick habitat. So stay on the cleared trails, stay away from the taller grass. And if you put down your tent, all right, and you, you, want, you want to be sure that you're putting your tent in, a, in an area that's free of a tick, of a tick habitat. If you want to put your tent in the grass, then I suggest that you take a white cloth and you drag that area where you want to put your tent with a white cloth and see if there are any ticks on it. Because when you come across ticks, you typically don't come across one or two. You come across very large populations. And it's, it's very spotty. These distributions where we find ticks are very spotty. So if there are no ticks in that particular quadrant that you're, that you're looking at to put your tent down, then you're probably pretty safe. Um, you can also dress appropriately um you know by wearing long pants tuck your uh pants into your socks um and you know it, it may look a little funny but at least the ticks when they're crawling up your legs they can't get underneath of your pants and access your skin and crawl up your legs that way some people will also use tape um and it's again it doesn't look great but <laughs> it's very effective um, even when, when I'm in areas and, and I'm either just out for a hike, I've known to even wrap tape, duct, I use duct tape, any kind of masking tape would also work, um, and put a layer sticky side down where your socks and your pants meet, and then take an extra layer of tape with the sticky side out, and that way any ticks that are crawling up your legs will attach, to, they'll stick to, to that tape. Now, if you don't want to go to that extent, which is understandable, a lot of people don't want to, um, then you can also use a tick repellent, um, any kind of repellent that has DEET in it. Uh, DEET can be sprayed on your clothes, it can be sprayed on your skin, and you want a DEET concentration of like 20 to 40% is usually the recommended uh, percentage of DEET. You can also spray your clothing with permethrin uh, but do not use permethrin on your bare skin. 
Okay, it's not recommended that you do that. Permethrin can be found as an active ingredient in a lot of repellents. So you can do that as well. Um, the other thing that you can do, I, I, I mentioned that, um, you know, ticks are not just found in areas of, of tall grass out, out in the woods. They're not just found in the woods. Um, if you live in an area where the woods back come up right up to your backyard and then you have a grass, you have your backyard that's nicely a manicured lawn, then one of the things that you can do is keep your, your lawn mowed short, okay? If you keep your lawn mowed really short, then that microhabitat, that area where the grass blade and the soil interfaces where the ticks hang out and they absorb the moisture from the air, those ticks are likely to dry out when that grass is really short because you're removing their microhabitat. Um, another thing you can do is put gravel around the backyard to where, like al along the, the outer perimeter of the backyard. And if you use gravel, ticks don't like to crawl across the gravel. And so, you know, that's not going to prevent the wildlife from coming into your backyard and ticks dropping off from the wildlife, but it'll prevent ticks from walking from the woods onto your, onto your mowed lawn. Um, the other thing is don't feed the wildlife. <laughs> um, don't, don't have a deer feeder. Um, some, some people like to feed the deer in their yard. And when you bring the deer in, you're also bringing in the ticks that are feeding on the deer and the ticks drop at the deer feeder. So you don't wanna do that. Same for bird feeders. Don't, don't bring the birds cause you bring the birds, you're also bringing the ticks. Um, and so, Lastly, what you can do is inspect yourself for ticks whenever you've been out um, and about and you think you've been in a habitat that might, might have had some ticks in it and inspect your dogs. Um, we call them tick checks. So that's the, that's the best way. The sooner you remove a tick from you and your animal, the less likely you are to have a pathogen that will infect you. The last question I've got for you is, What's one thing about ticks that you wish everybody would know or, or something that you know about ticks that you just have always, always enjoyed sharing with people about them? Yeah. So, um, in a laboratory setting, the, the thing that, that amazes me and that grabbed my attention about ticks and, and made me excited to study them was that ticks can go an entire year without a blood meal. And, to me, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, I can't go much over three hours without something to eat, and a tick can go an entire year without that blood meal in the laboratory setting, and that, that is absolutely amazing that they can survive that long, and that's assuming, you know, their relative humidity is, is set at about 70 to 80 percent um, so that they're still able to absorb the moisture out of the air, but they don't have a nutrient source the blood meal is all they have. So to be able to survive that long without a nutrient source, to me, was absolutely amazing. And that's, that, that inspired me to study them. Well, that, that was going to be my next question is, what is it that draws someone to study? I mean, I've got to open this up a little bit more. You don't just study ticks. You also study maggots. And so what is it that really drew you to this field of medical veterinary forensic entomology yeah so i'm a 
bit unusual, I guess, in that sense. Um, I, I thought I wanted to become a veterinarian and I decided there are certain aspects of veterinary medicine that I did not like and started, I, I knew I had an interest in parasites. So I thought, well, how could I tie parasites in with animals? You know, what, what kind of fields could I study there? And then um, I got to start studying a protozoan parasite on monarch butterflies. And I thought, hey, this is really cool. And how can we prevent these monarchs from dying? And from there, um, I started reading about ticks and, and thought, wow, uh, these ticks are fascinating. And during my graduate work, I started working with a um, one of my mentors who was not my advisor for my research, but just a, a, a mentor I sought out. And he started a forensics class, a forensic entomology course. And I, I immediately was in because I just thought, wow, this is kind of a different a different arena to some extent, but it's kind of the, the opposite side of things where with medical veterinary entomology, you really don't want your people and your animals to die from these diseases. But then if they do die, well, now you have the maggots to clean up the mess. So um, I think maggots are, maggots are really cool in what they do and they're essential to the decomposition process. Okay, so um, now that we've sort of opened uh opened up that area of this. I got, I got two questions. One, uh, before we get into the maggots, what kind of classes did you have to take? So what are some things that you would recommend maybe that people think about or plan for if they are curious about this direction for a career? You know, definitely a strong foundation in general biology and ecology. And from there, if you, if, if, um, you wanted to see if you really we're into this kind of work because it is, um, it, it's fun. It's some people think it's really gross, but I would suggest a parasitology class. I took one as an undergraduate student and that's where I found out that I really had a passion for parasites. And I thought that their evolution with their hosts was, was absolutely amazing. And so if you find something like that, that captures you start there. And then depending upon your, university and what school you go to, you may also have an opportunity to take courses in entomology and study just general insect biology. And from there, you, you, there are universities um, that also offer the medical entomology classes and veterinary entomology courses as well. Um, so after you get those basics in that, that foundation out of the way first, the biological foundation and your basic chemistry out of the way, then start looking at more specialized courses in parasitology and entomology. Great, great advice there. Okay, back to the maggots. Um, what is it that, that people can learn? I mean, we, we see these different TV shows and things where they bring in somebody who does the forensics. What is it that the maggots are telling them? Yeah, maggots can tell us quite a bit, actually. Um, first and foremost, and, and probably the, the, one of the most important um, contributions that maggots make is the determination of what's called a postmortem interval in homicide investigations or even a suicide. And what that is, is it's a time between death and when the body is discovered. 
So maggots, if we collect these maggots, we can determine what species we have. And based on the species, we, can, we, we know how long it takes them to develop under certain temperatures and relative humidities and precipitations. And then we can kind of work backwards to, to determine how long that that body has been there. Um, we can also use maggots to determine if there was any drug involvement in a case. And so, for example, um, if an individual died of an opioid overdose, um, we can take maggots and, and let's say that uh, the medical examiner could not do a tox toxicology screen on the liver. Maybe the body was so badly decomposed that it was not possible to do a toxicology screen. Then we can take the maggots and we can isolate drugs from the maggots themselves. Because remember, the maggots are feeding on the individual that's on the victim, the, the individual that's decomposing. And so you can isolate a lot of different chemicals um, from, from those maggots. That makes them very useful in that regard too. And so even with that, it just, it seems like that shows the importance of good notes, taking uh, your data the proper way, just good fundamental scientific principles there. Exactly. And, and in, for, in forensics in general, um, you know, they're, they're trying to strengthen the science of forensic science and forensic entomology being a subdiscipline of that. It's incredibly important that, that we're properly collecting data and analyzing that data correctly because, you know, uh, it, it's, it's about the science. It's not about who done it. It's what the science can tell us. Well, that, that brings us around to what uh, is the last question I've got for you. You teach a course in forensic entomology. And so tell me a little bit about that class. I think we may have some teachers who are listening in on this. So just a little bit about what you do and how you approach that and, and the things you're trying to accomplish in that class. Yeah, so, so that class is, um, has, has been a fun class to teach because it's so applied. Um, what I can do in that course is set up mock death scenes using pig carcasses and students investigate their own, their, their death scenes that they're assigned to. And so when they go out to their death scenes, they have to interview witnesses. And these are mock witnesses who are just like the real world don't always cooperate. <laughs> and so they get that experience of, huh, it's hard to ask questions and I also have to ask the right question to get the right answer that I'm looking for. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then the students collect their insect evidence from their death scene and analyze all of that, including weather data. And then they have to draw a conclusion and they have to determine the postmortem interval for, for their victim. And the last thing that they do is they present their case to the jury. So we have a mock trial and they present their data and they get uh, questioned by the prosecutor, they get questioned, uh, cross-examined by the defense attorney, and get um, some pretty in intense questions on their methods and why they did things the way they did it and why their calculations were as such. Um, so it's a, it is a, a real-world experience as close as I can get it to, to the real thing. And it's a lot of fun and students love it. But I think the hardest thing for students is the smell of decomposition. 
Yeah, um, having participated in one of these in a summer day in Oklahoma, it is a, an interesting multi-sensory experience to be sure. Well, Heather, thank you so much uh, for talking with us all today and sharing all this great information. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you about this. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up my interview with Dr. Ketchum. I want to thank Dr. Ketchum for taking time for the interview. And as always, I thank Terry Gibson for her help with this episode's development. For more information about ticks and other resources for this episode, please visit my website. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone.